The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're having one of our coffee talks with a truly world-renowned figure in our field. Dr. Emre Sally is having coffee today with Dr. Alan DeCherney. Dr. DeCherney is currently a senior investigator at the National Institutes of Health he earned his BA from Muhlenberg College and his medical degree from Temple University, after which he completed his residency at the University of Pennsylvania. He has been the John Slate Eli Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and REI Division Chief at Yale University, the Fanouf Professor and Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Tufts University, Chair and REI Division Chief at UCLA. He also served as the president of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Reproductive Investigation, as well as the editor-in-chief of Fertility and Sterility. As one of the pioneers of reproductive medicine, we wanted to talk to him about the changing landscape of REI training and what the future holds for our field. Let's listen in. Dr. DeCherney, it is wonderful to have you join our podcast. Thank you for your time. Before we get into detail, please tell us about your beginnings. How did you choose medicine? How did you decide to become an OBGYN? And finally, how did you end up becoming a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility subspecialist? My father was a general practitioner in South Philadelphia, and we lived with the practice. So I kind of always knew I wanted to be a doctor. Just my father was a great role model. Um, in medical school, I did very well. And I was first in the class in internal medicine. So I took an internal medicine uh, residency uh, for one year. And at that time, before you did OBGYN, you had to have an internship. And I, I took internal medicine, but I didn't know at that point I wanted to be an OBGYN. But about three, year, three weeks into the residency, the medical residency, I decided I really missed surgery and I wanted to do surgery. But I didn't want to do uh, neurosurgery or thoracic which are very long cases. And also I wanted variety and I wanted the patient uh, inter, uh, involvement in what I did. So OBGYN seemed to be uh, a perfect uh, choice. I then applied for residencies. Um, I applied for five residencies. I got in, into all of them, but I finally chose the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Mastriani flew me back from Pittsburgh where I was an intern, spent the day with me, and that really uh, impressed me. It turned out that it was a great decision for me. Um, I like continuity of care with patients. I've enjoyed that. It's certainly a happy uh, specialty uh, most, of, most of the time. Um, at, the, uh, at the end of my residency, I was drafted for two years. And um, I didn't know at that time that I wanted to be a reproductive endocrinologist. But I was uh, drafted uh, to Japan where I practiced general OBGYN. And of course, I couldn't get a job uh, 
uh, from Japan. Uh, so I took the job of running the clinics at Yale. Um, the skill that I came with is I, I was a skilled uh, reproductive surgeon because of my training at Penn. Well, a few months after I left, uh, Dr. Spiroff left to become the chairman at, at, uh, at Oregon. Uh, and uh, Dr. Case left soon after that to become uh, the dean at the Mount Sinai. So I, by default, became a reproductive endocrinologist. I never had a fellowship. Uh, I learned a lot of it on my own, and I, uh, I passed the boards. And from that point on, I was a uh, reproductive endocrinologist. <laughs> Sounds very interesting. I, I wouldn't have guessed this. Um, <laughs> so now it will be reasonable to say that you're a legend in our field, but I know it was in the beginning, even the field was, you know, not well defined. In fact, I know that there was a time and there was no IVF at Yale. And, and, and I think you, I think you had to initiate it. Uh, can you tell us how that happened? And what was that like? Well, um, I was, uh, well, first of all, I was never made, Dr. Naftalin never made me the division head. Okay. <laughs> I was always the interim division head uh, for almost 16 years, but uh, it worked out okay. <laughs> I went to a meeting in uh, Grenoble, France, about, it was the first international meeting on transplantation of the fallopian tube. It happened to be the last international meeting on the fallopian tube transplant. I had done a fallopian transplant, tube transplant at Yale. It was a uh, in one patient where she had a half a tube on one side and the opposite half on the other. I re-anastomosed re the tube. And of course the patient uh, got, got pregnant. So I, they asked me to speak at this meeting. On the way back, I took my children and my wife. And on the way back, we went to a meeting. Uh, actually that this meeting was the precursor of ESHRAE. It was called ESCO. And uh, I went to the meeting uh, because we were there, it was a holiday. It happened to be in Venice and it's where Steptoe and Edwards presented their first IVF case. It wasn't, loose, it wasn't Brown, but it was a case where they had an ectopic pregnancy that was published in Lancet. And I came back and I said, this is the future. This is the future of infertility treatment that uh, what we do tubal surgery, success rates are too low. Other things that we do have low success rates. This will, these people will perfect this in a brief period of time. And they did two years later, they published uh, Brown. And uh, I, I got tremendous uh, resistance. People thought it was a fad. Uh, people thought it, you know, it was okay, but it's not something that Yale uh, should do. Uh, but I definitely, uh, I definitely persisted. And we were the first unit in the country, the fifth unit in the country to do uh, IVF. So, um, and, and, you know, obviously became a great, uh, a great and successful uh, program. And uh, I was correct that this was the future uh, of reproductive endocrinology. In fact, it's become too much of the future uh, because it encompasses uh, the tra our, our training, perhaps limits people as far as what they do to just IVF, which I'm, uh, I think is a mistake. So clearly a lot has changed over the years and partially at least as you predicted. And, uh, and in this series, we're also very interested in uh, understanding how things that we take for granted today were seen when they first came about. Uh, what would you say the two or three key developments uh, that have truly reshaped our field and how were they received when they happened? I obviously you talked about IVF, but anything in, in that lineup that you see well, particularly certainly important? 
uh, ovulation induction. Ovulation induction was a black box before IVF. Now, why? It doesn't make any sense because the tools were there. Measuring estrogen was possible, uh, IVF for follicles, but nobody put that together uh, until IVF came along. So the understanding of ovulation induction uh, based on getting patients prepared uh, for an IVF cycle. Yeah, so so I, that, that, that's a major, uh, that was a major change. Uh, the other change it made us players as far as science is concerned. We are, we really do translational science. Who does bench to bedside science other than we do? Uh, we do genetics in the laboratory, uh, media in the laboratory. Uh, but uh, the truth is we don't get any, uh, we, we are not considered basic scientists. We're not considered physician scientists because our science is translational science. Now, in the end, I think that will go away because I think people will see the tremendous strides we've made and advances in, uh, in, in reproduction uh, over the past uh, 40 years. But right now, people do not consider our science real science. Fair enough. Dr. Deshoney, I, I have many, many questions for you, but I have one personal question that you also have a society named after you. How did this happen? And how importantly, how does one become a member? <laughs> Well, there was um, there was a small society called the Paul McDonough Society, named after McDonough from Georgia. Uh, and when I became the president of uh, ASRM in 1994, uh, my fellows and former fellows thought that this was a way to honor me uh, to have a, a to have a society. So that's pretty much how it started. And last year was our 25th uh, 25th anniversary. It's mainly people that I have trained now. Some people are residents that I trained that are interested in RE. Uh, even some people that are medical students that turned out to be REs that didn't really wor ever work with me. But the bulk of the members are fellow fellows and former fellows. If you're interested, since you're at Yale, I'm happy to make you a member. All right. Thank you, sir. I always wanted to be one. Uh, all right. So... Moving forward, uh, you play so many leadership roles at several important institutions. You've led the OBGYN departments, REI divisions throughout the country, and pre preside over ASM. Uh, as someone who has been directly involved in fellowship training over the last few decades, and I know how committed you are to fellows, how would you summarize the changes that REI fellowship training has undergone? Well, uh, certainly, it started out as a broader field with uh, lots of different surgery, surgeries and uh, various endocrine divisions uh, and diseases and IVF, of course. And what's happened, a lot of things have been plucked away from our program. Makes uh, uh, people do the surgery now. Medical endocrine people want to do the endocrine that we do. The PAGs people want to do the adolescent uh, things that we did in the past. Now, we are responsible for that as REs because we let it slip away um, and we focus too much o o on IVF. So I think this is a, uh, a juncture, a... Uh, um, a turning point in the, in the residencies, because I think people are beginning to realize that they burn out now if they just do, if they just do IVF. And I think, you know, obviously our, our 
colleagues are bright. They did well in college. They went to medical school. They did well in medical school. They did well. in right? So these are bright people. So after 10 years of just doing IVF, I think they, they burn out. So I think that we should uh, rejuvenate uh, the program and make it more interesting. And what we plan to do with our fellowship, and we've done it to an extent, this is really just an extension, is to focus uh, the fellow, the focus, well, uh, an, another uh, fact is that they want to change the breakdown uh, of the time as far as what fellows do. Uh, in our program, it's 18 months clinical, 18 months research. And actually, it turns out to be more than 18 months research. Well, now they want to make it at the end, two years of clinical and one year of research. Well, you can't do great research in, in a year. It takes six to eight months just to learn the techniques that the uh, that you plan to employ. So what we're gonna to start to do, and we've already done it, I'll use genetics as an example. Uh, right now, we, have, we, we take fellows and we don't track them. They come, we take fellows who, for who they are. So, so for genetics, we, we have a program with the genetics program where they take two years with us and two years with genetics. So patients come out, uh, candidates come out uh, doubly uh, boarded. We're starting a surgery program where they can do some more surgical cases, but their research has to be in a surgical, a basic surgery research project. And other things as well, PAGS, we have a PAGS program here. They can work with the PAGS program. Or, of course, it's always open to do, uh, to do basic science. I mean, we have excellent basic scientists here. Now, the push here is because at the NIH, uh, I think that the concept is that the people that come out of our program uh, all are become academic physician scientists. I think it's unrealistic. I'm happy to train those people, but I think it's unrealistic. I think our people don't want to do bench science. Do you have any examples at Yale of anybody who's been through the program, did basic science, and then stayed on as a basic scientist? We 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 have some people who did basic science and stayed as a translational NIH-funded researcher. Um, I think one advantage of uh, of institutions like NIH and Yale is that uh, we have a really high uh, funding for K awards, training awards. So if a fellow is considering becoming a physician scientist, they have a chance to do so. Uh, my, what I have seen over the years that the attrition happens at the first R01 and especially at the second R01 level, because as you know, NIH is more lenient for the first R01, uh, different cutoff point, but for the second, it's really, really tough. And you're, com you're trying to make a living, grow your children, uh, you know, uh, take care of your patients and then compete for the 6% funding rate with all the very, very smart PhDs. So uh, we have lost a lot. Some people remained, you know, uh, but many people at the end, at the second R01 level, kind of uh, chose another path. I mean, we just had another K awardee who just got an R01. Uh, but, you know, we will see what happens 10 years from now. You're right. I mean, the long term is complicated. I think NIH is also aware of this issue of um, mid-career loss of physician scientists. It's extremely difficult to be successful in mid-career due to the uh, current right, standard. Right, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an economic thing. You can't you know, you're living on $150,000 a year and your colleagues are making $300,000 a year. Yeah. And so also it's, a, it's very hard. But, you know, the people, NIH still has this aura uh, that that's what we should train. And, and that's fine. I and mean, we're happy to train them. 
but it, the, the, uh, these people do not last, at least from my, in my experience. I'm just saying the same thing that you just said. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And and it is, I, I may also add one more thing. Uh, you know, when, when we, I think it was 20 plus, 25 years ago when I started, you know, we think being a physician scientist is, is a seven day work. It's not, it's impossible to do it in five days a week and eight hours a day. And I think there's also more of an emphasis, rightfully so, by the way, I'm not against it, but on a life work balance uh, with, with the, I guess, the next generation, we should call it. And and I'm all for it. Good for them. <laughs> right. I think that's definitely true, because if you're a clinician, you have to work very hard uh, to make it, to make your money to, to sustain uh, your salary. There is an extra time. And if you want that extra time, you have to work on weekends. When I was at Yale, Every Saturday, I worked full-time. The labs were filled with people. Our journal club was Saturday morning breakfast. Well, now nobody comes to work on Saturday. Uh, the <laughs> labs are empty on Saturday. That's so it's true. a totally different uh, culture. Do I think it's a good idea? No, I think it's a bad idea. And I think that uh, we're less productive because of that. And I don't think that's gonna ha- it's not going to work out in the, in the long run uh, that that's the way we behave. But... Uh, that's that's my feeling, and who knows? So that's uh, that that's hard to tell. So we, for the last five years, I mean, I just had my site visit, so I went over this. For the last five years, we've have produced our group seventy papers a year, or plus or minus two papers. And yet, in the site visit, they don't consider that science. That's, uh, you know, there's a few basic science from our thesis, but we produce a lot of science, a lot of papers from our uh, association with Shady Grove, looking at various factors. So that's just, that bothers me that we do produce science and it's translational science, but it doesn't have the same uh, panache that basic science does. Yeah, Uh, which is, which is uh, concerning because uh, a lot of actually advances happen through the translational work in association with uh, uh, clinically active centers. So I, th- I think your, uh, your science is very valuable, all of it, not just the basic ones. And basic is good. Basic science is also, it has its merits, but I think um, the big uh, success of uh, ART, IVF comes from actually translational work. And, and basic and- science has to come from people that focus on basic science. It's not like it used to be where it could be part-time. It's not, it's complicated now. It's extremely complicated. The engineers have made it very technically uh, uh, sophisticated. And uh, I, I don't think, I think there has to be room for both basic science and clinicians in, in, in concert. I, it's, I think it's hard for uh, a, a, an active clinician uh, to be a basic scientist as well. I agree. Sounds ideal, and it sounds great from uh, people that make strategic plans. But I think on the front line, I think it's difficult. I agree. There, I want to ask another thing. There is a, I we are we are told that there is currently a, some debate about the ideal length of an REI fellowship, and whether it should be better. You know, it would be better to decrease the research component and shorten the total fellowship to two years. What is your opinion about this? Well, I think that it's wrong. I mean, the uh, the option is to do just two years of clinical. Uh, but I think that the, the fact that you do some investigative work uh, is important. I mean, you have to be a lifetime learner today. Things are changing. Uh, 
uh, I mean, I used to talk about my father. My, with my father, I would joke. When he got out of medical school, he knew everything he had to know. Well, that's not true anymore. I mean, it wasn't true for him either, but it was good to tease him. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, for us, we have to keep up. I mean, that's why we have – why do we have journal clubs? We have journal clubs because we want our fellows to continue to read the literature critically so that they know how to improve their practice and, 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 and adjust uh, to things. For the record, I, I, I do agree with you and, and also would like to emphasize the fact that a lot of the people that you train, we train – may actually real contributors to how this field progresses. I mean, REI field did not only go forward because of some obscure basic scientists who in academia, a lot of people are clinically active from all these fellowship programs push the field forward. And, and only by training them adequately, in my opinion, we could uh, keep the fast pace of development in this field, but you know, I sure, I've trained lots of people that are program directors. Mm -hmm. My a lot of my people publish. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, we've trained good people that that are the mainstay in the field, and I've trained some people that have done basic science. But I don't think that you you should be considered not a scientist if you don't do bench science. I mean, how many people continue to do their work that they did in their thesis? Two years after their one year after they taken the uh, the board exam, very very few. Oh, I did a study for that when I was on the board, the the uh, the ABOG board. Very few people continued that work. So um, I have witnessed over the years that you've been very um, vocal and quite bold in predicting potential challenges in the lives of REIs in the future. In fact, you shared with us a text of your. Um, a recent publication titled Little Artie Finds Satori. Uh, it was on precisely on this issue. What is your vision of the role of REI specialists in the coming decade or two decades? I think that they have to be subspecialists in some field associated with the ART. They have to be geneticists. Uh, they have to be know about a lot about the laboratory. They have to be, uh, and my best example is if I was if I was going to go through the program now, I would focus on epidemiology and artificial intelligence, because I think that very soon IVF will be paid for. Uh, it will be reimbursed and the insurance companies will use big data in order to assess what uh, what reimbursement should be. Uh, is an add-on worth it uh, or not? Uh, what is your success rates? What is your twinning rate? And uh, we've generated the, the uh, we'd, we've started to generate big data. I mean, uh, the registry alone uh, is, is a massive data and every practice has a lot of data in it uh, that, because of the electronic medical record. So I think to be an expert in epidemiology would be extremely helpful. And of course, AI is, is taking over. And uh, AI, as far as running your laboratory, is, uh, is around the corner. And in fact, there are people in Europe uh, that have already, and maybe in the United States, I just don't know. I know there are companies that are looking into it, American companies, uh, where your lab will be run by uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, you won't, there won't be much to do as far as the technician is concerned. So I think that those are things that I would uh, 
I would focus on. I think every practice should have an epidemiologist. Everybody practice should have an REI that knows endocrine, an REI that knows surgery, an REI uh, that knows genetics. And that's, that's what I think where the field uh, should go. And I wouldn't let a bunch of PhDs dictate where the field should go because they have no idea. They don't, you know, their idea where the field is going is different than ours because they're looking at pathways and interrupting pathways. I don't discredit what they do and how that will apply to us, but it's not here today. It's, the, it, it's down the road. Obviously, better understanding of genetic metabolism and early development of the embryo is extremely important. Uh, to us, but I'm not sure practicing clinicians can do that where practicing clinicians can do the other. Thank you. So in this environment, if you could give some words of advice to, let's say, Andres, and I did, you did some. Andres is going to start his fellowship in July. What would you tell him? Subspecialized in subspecialized, right? I would find an area of, uh, of reproductive endocrine that he particularly liked, that he should be an expert in that part clinically, and he should develop a research career in that area. And that he should be, <laughs> he should be the guy. He, you want to be the guy that somebody's putting together a, a program and they want somebody that knows about the media, uh, microparticles in the media, or mitochondria in, uh, in early embryo development. You're the guy. Call this guy up. Invite him to talk. Plus, the rest of your time, you're doing clinical care and, and providing a service to, to patients. Remember, the, your major job as a physician is to take care of patients. I'll tell you a, story, I'll tell you a philosophy. Okay. You have a, you're interviewing a person for your fellowship. And this person has a PhD from Harvard in molecular biology, looking at early embryo development in the mouse. And now they're coming to you to be to, to your clinical fellowship. What is the chance that that person is going to be an academic uh, reproductive endocrinologist and uh, spend the rest of his, his or her life uh, getting RO1s? Very little. Why? Why? Because... Um... I, as I get older, I start to think that economics play a lot of a strong role in people. Also, that person changed their career. That person was a scientist, and now they want to be, a, and the story's the same. Somebody was a physician, and then came to me and said, I want to be a fellow, but I'd also like to get a PhD um, in some aspect of, uh, of reproduction. I know that that's a person that's probably going to go on and have an academic career, because they've seen clinical medicine, and now they want to take a, a, a different pathway and use their clinical uh, expertise to help them with their basic science. So you have to, you know, you, it's hard to channel. The best advice you can be, the best advice you can give people is to tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> I love it. I, I think so too. You, it will never fail. So as we have experienced uh, during this talk, you uh, through the phone calls that you receive, you are known for keeping good personal relationships and being very close to people, even after many years of not working together. I mean, I have seen front desk people at Yale calling you on yourself 25 years after you left. Uh, how does someone like you with a career as busy and successful as yours make time for personal life? Because that, that, takes, that takes no time. It's fun. It takes no time. 
Uh, you do it quickly. <laughs> I definitely do things quickly. I do everything quickly. That, that doesn't take time. I mean, first of all, you know, I sleep. I only sleep four hours a night. So I have more time than most people uh, <laughs> to do things. And, uh, and and it's fine. And I like to, I like people. I, I like, uh, you know, I like to be part of people's lives. I, I like, I like people in general. I'm a people person. You definitely are. Well, you, uh, for the record, uh, everybody still speaks very highly of you at Yale. And that is not a, a common event. So, <laughs> so I hear. So I hear. <laughs> okay. If, if we can be a little more personal. Although we can, speaking of personal life, uh, the urban legend has it that you almost presented an award at the Oscars. Is that, is that true when you were at L.A., UCLA? No, no. I'm, no, okay. All right. <laughs> no, but I, I, I went to the Oscars. Okay. You okay. You were at least invited. That's good. I went were, I was invited to the Oscars, but also my son got an Oscar. And wow. my son's the chair of the media and film department at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And every year the uh, Oscars give a, an award uh, to, to an academician. So I'll tell you, so when my son was applying to college, Uh -huh. It's a week before the acceptance has come out, and he's under a lot of pressure. And oh, he, I, he only wants—he only—I want him to go to a good school because it reflects on me. And I said, "That's not true. I don't care where you go to school as long as you're happy." And uh, so then, when he got his Oscar, we we had already moved here. We went back and had a brunch for our friends to introduce him to our son and celebrate him getting an Oscar. And I said, "You know, I told my son when he was going to college, I didn't care where he." where he went because it, it didn't reflect on me. Now that he has an Oscar, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Actually, Dr. DiCerny, I am one week away from learning where my son ends up. So uh, I'm, I'm waiting. And I, that, I told him exactly the same thing, but uh, let's see what But it does. is true. I mean, you don't, there, there are 25 schools that kids re apply to. I mean, they're all great schools. I agree. I and agree. my son was guaranteed. My son was the uh, goalie on the lacrosse team, and they recruited him. So, I mean, they, he didn't even need that pressure, but that, that's life, you know? I know, I know. They they, they put that upon us. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, when earlier we talked about the key developments in REI, and uh, we are asking you for your vision at this, uh, toward the end of our talk, and what do you think will be the two or three areas that will be the next breakthroughs? Uh, that will shape the next 20, 30 years of REI? Well, it's obviously going to be improved pregnancy rates. And that's going to be through mainly implantation, understanding implantation. And of course, the, the whole field of genetics. I mean, hopefully we remain the geneticists, uh, the early geneticists that we're supposed to be. And we don't let other people take that away from us. Because that's, that's you know, that's going to be the issue. Yet the goal is to make perfect embryos that turn out to be perfect people. Now, that's the, the, that's the objective side. The subjective side is that we have to make it available to more people. More people have to be able to access uh, uh, superior infertility care. I mean, access is just as, as important. You can't have a per group of the population getting genetic engineering and another part of the population not getting adequate treatment. So that's a challenge as well, because it's it's uh, dividing uh, resources in order to make everybody uh, somewhat equal. Thank you so much, Dr. DeCherny. Uh, we really appreciate uh, uh, 
that you took the time to be with us today. It's been an honor. Thank you. Okay, well, it was great. Don't cut any of the, don't don't cut any of those gossips out. Thank you. But I'm also very happy that uh, we got to talk to you this way because it's it this is actually you know the things we write in papers or books become outdated. Uh, I have friends who are historians and you know they always complain they're underpaid, but I tell them at least your books will remain, whereas our books are discarded. But I think th- this kind of conversation will remain a longer time, like than how we, how much gonna left we use, <laughs> which may well, change. What, what I said in my acceptance speech for the. Uh, Achieve uh, the ASRM uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. Your patients are only loyal for a brief period of time. Your research, also a brief period of time, because people improve on it. So your real legacy is the people that you train. And that's, I think, uh, important. This has been another episode of Fertility Pod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening and for being with us as we started our podcast this year. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We'll be taking a couple of weeks to wrap up 2020 and prepare for the coming year, and we'll be back in January with more expert coffee talks like this one, research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next year.